Today's scripture is 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, if we've not met, my name is Darian Lockett. I'm a professor at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University, and I'm a, a teaching elder in our denomination. And from time to time, it's my joy to get to serve Trinity uh, by, by ministering word and sacraments. So this is a, a joy uh, to get to think about Second Peter uh, with you today. Now, it's, it's already been uh, mentioned this morning. MK, uh, I'm along with her this morning figuring out what day of the week it is today. Um, uh, Eric has mentioned that, uh, you know, this is a time where we're looking back, looking forward. We're thinking about our lives. We're thinking about uh, maybe new habits we want to take up. This is an odd time of year, frankly. The space between Christmas Day and New Year's Day um, some take this time off. Uh, students and teachers, like me, were out of school. Many have returned to work, but maybe feel less productive or distracted. What are we supposed to do during this time? Uh, it feels kind of like a lull, like a pause, uh, a time without any instructions about what we should be doing. Um, it feels kind of like this, pardon the meme. Uh, but the first part of December, December 1st to the 26th, I feel festive. I'm ready to go. I'm excited about Christmas. But between December 27th and the end of December, I know he says something like, I'm confused, full of cheese, unsure of the day of the week. For me, it's I'm confused. I'm full of cookies. I don't know what day of the week it is. Uh, but we feel a little out of sorts, perhaps. And we can take that down now. Um, but but, but what, I, what I hope to say here, though, is like Eric already said, it is Christmas tide. It is Christmas season. Kind of like your map application on your phone, the Christian calendar helps us locate ourselves and to navigate through time. We are in the midst of the 12 days of Christmas. That's not just a song we sing but it's a season of the church calendar we experience. Christmas is uh, the 12 days that we are celebrating the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And, and, and we remember this because most of us in the past week have 
exchanged gifts. You have bought a gift for someone or you've received a gift yourself. And this practice of gift giving reminds us of the central mystery, the thing that makes us go, ah, and be full of wonder, the central mystery of Christmas. That is, the incarnation of God in Christ. When we give each other gifts at Christmas, they remind us of God's ultimate gift to us. God gives us himself in the person of Jesus Christ. One of the ways this gift is remembered during the Christmas season is through something called the O Antiphons. Now, I'd never heard of these before, uh, but this is an ancient practice started in the Middle Ages. The O Antiphons are songs that the church would sing, especially in the seven last days before Christmas, uh, Christmas Day, the Feast of Christmas. And in English, the closest thing that we have to the O Antiphons is the Christmas hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. In fact, this uh, hymn has summarized several of these O Antiphons. Uh, o Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O Come, O Wisdom from on high. O Come, O Great Lord of Might. O Come, O Key of David. O Come, Bright and Morning Star, so on and so forth. This week, when I was reading, I came across one more antiphon, one that's not in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and this one focuses on the gift uh, that I'm thinking of today. In fact, the, the title of my sermon, I've changed it. It's uh, different than what's in your bulletin. Um, I'm calling it The Great Exchange, and it's coming from this O antiphon. We can uh, turn the slide to that, uh, that uh, antiphon. Uh, it says this, O wondrous exchange. That's where the title's coming from, Great Exchange or Wondrous Exchange. The creator of humankind taking upon him a living body, vouchsafe to be born of a virgin and without seed becoming a man, he hath made us partakers of his divinity. Notice how the hymn here connects Jesus' becoming human, the incarnation, and us, our being made partakers in his divinity. This is the great exchange. Jesus exchanges his glory for a manger so that we can exchange our sin and brokenness for new life. This is straight out of 2 Peter. Through Advent, we've been thinking about 2 Peter as a text where Peter is giving his kind of last will and testament, uh, reminding his followers that they need to be in a posture of waiting for Christ's coming again, his coming judgment. But here at the very beginning of 2 Peter, Peter starts his letter with a reminder of how God has given us everything that we need to live a godly life. It is in Jesus' own glory and goodness, his perfect life, his death as a man that gives us the ability to live in a new way. This is the great exchange, that the creator of the universe becomes human so that we can be united with God. We can share in his divine nature. What? And exchange. So three points will help us through this passage. The first point is already up on the screen. What is the great exchange? Second, 
Um, the purpose of the exchange. And third, what changes in the exchange. First, what is the great exchange? Second, the purpose of that exchange. And third, what actually changes? What changes in this exchange? Uh, so first, we'll, we'll just uh, look at one verse, Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 3. What is the exchange? Look there in your bulletin or in your Bible, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Uh, who is it that's giving this uh, divine power to us? It's, it's Jesus himself. Jesus himself is the one who has given us everything required for life and godliness. And Peter writes this letter to remind his readers that Jesus is the Savior. He provides everything we need, not just for our spiritual lives, but for all aspects of life. So, so notice this first idea in verse 3 is that Peter is not saying that there are two separate parts of our lives. The spiritual part, uh, that's the part where we go to church and read the Bible. Uh, and then the non-spiritual part, uh, Monday through Saturday, when we go to work, when we're out in the world, the rest of the week. Now, I know that we all feel this separation between the spiritual and non-spiritual parts of our lives, but Peter is saying they're not separate. It's not as if Jesus has come to redeem the spiritual part of our lives and uh, ignore the rest. Famously, Abraham Kuyper, and this uh, quotation is on the screen for us, uh, Abraham Kuyper said this, he said, There is not one square inch in the whole of creation over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is our sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Peter is saying, look, Jesus has given us, God has equipped us with what we need for all of life. Jesus here is concerned with every aspect of our lives. He wants us to be living all of life to his glory. Not just some of the parts, not just Sunday, not just a time where we're praying, but what we do with our hands, what we do in our career, how we parent, what kind of neighbors we are, what hobbies do we take up, how do we spend our time, how do we vote. Peter is saying, Jesus has given us power to live a godly life in all ways, all throughout our life whole and integrated, a life that is pleasing to God. Let me ask you this. How would your life be different if you were convinced that you had all you needed? Uh, let me think about money and time. So money, think about this. Uh, if, you, if you could look at your bank account on uh, January 1st and find somehow that you've got $5 million in your bank account, where did that come from? All of a sudden, you might live your life in a different way. I don't have to worry about my mortgage. I, I can take care of dinner for everyone tonight. I've got plenty. I have an overabundance of resources. I can afford to be generous. Now, my, my problem is not money. If you've heard me preach before, you know my problem, my sin problem, is an idea of being very stingy. 
um, I suffer from a scarcity mindset, not around money, but around time. And the most uh, stressful thing for me to hear is this, a knock at my office door where a student wants to talk to me. I know this might sound counterintuitive, but I like to be alone. (laughs) I love my books. And I feel like when someone is knocking at my door, they're stealing time from me. But I have to repent from that because I've been called not just to sit in a room with my books, but to love and teach and guide students. It's one of my greatest joys. But I'm only able to be generous with my time when I know I've got all I need. God is providing for me what I need. I need to trust in him that the time I have this week to do research or to write on this project, it's enough. And that when a student comes and they want to talk about something outside of class, that's a privilege. It's a moment to love. It's a moment to minister. How would we live our lives differently if we were convinced you've got all that you need? That's what Peter is saying here to us, reminding us, you've got all you need. This great exchange that we're going to talk about more, it gives you all that you need to live a life that God has designed for you. Notice something else here in verse 3. This exchange is a gift. Notice it says there, his divine power has given us everything required. It's a gift. Jesus has given us this power to live this new kind of life. Um, If you open your bulletin to the reflection quotes, there's a quote there from Martin Luther. Uh, He's talking about this power that's been given to us. It's the last reflection quote. It says, uh, he says this, uh, it is the power that serves us in securing eternal life. And in godly living here, that is, if we believe, we then gain so much that God himself does it. He is in us strong, powerful, almighty, even if we are about to suffer and die and are weak in the eyes of the world. There is no power or virtue in ourselves if we have not this God power. We have such power of God that we are uh, uh, favored with an overflow of his grace to do good and to live forever. It's, it's a gift. It's a gift that God has given us this power to change, this exchange. And, and notice how Jesus gives us this power. We are passive. This power is not earned. It is not discovered or acquired by us. Rather, Peter says it's a gift given. Uh, Again, look at verse 3. His divine power has given to us everything required for life and godliness. Notice it's through the knowledge of him who called us. This gift is given to us through the knowledge of him who called us. The word knowledge is a really important word throughout 2 Peter. Um, But it doesn't mean maybe the kind of knowledge that we think of right off the bat. Uh, Peter does not mean the kind of knowledge that you learn from a book. He doesn't mean it's the kind of knowledge you learn from class or getting a degree. Rather, knowledge here in Second Peter is knowledge that comes from experiencing conversion. It's knowing Jesus, knowing the gospel, 
encountering God through Christ Jesus. This is knowledge. This is how we receive this power to live a new kind of life. Peter describes Jesus as the one who calls us. And and, and maybe today, if you're here as a Christian, you might remember a specific time when Jesus called you, drew you to himself, a moment when Jesus became real to you, a moment when you understood your sin and your brokenness, when you first realized uh, what I would call the, the first phrase of the gospel or the first part of the gospel, which is kind of bad news at first. Uh, it's the news that we realize we are far more broken, far more lost than we ever thought we could be. Uh, this, uh, this, this idea was driven home to me a couple of years ago when our kitchen sink was clogged and we called out a plumber to, to clean out our kitchen sink. And um, it wasn't my son yet because uh, he is a plumber now, but it wasn't a few years ago. Um, uh, but this plumber came out and he was trying to clear our sink and he had a 75-foot snake that he had put down the pipe and he worked on it and worked on it and worked on it and I thought, ooh, this is getting expensive by the minute. Um, he, he pulled that out and said, your clog is really deep. I'm going to have to go get my 150-foot snake to snake out this clog. And I, I am a Presbyterian. I don't hear the voice of God all the time, but I heard the voice of God in the plumber's comments. Lockett, your sin problem needs a 150-foot Holy Spirit snake. That's how broken you are. It's deeper and more profound than you thought. Jesus is the one who calls us, and maybe if you're a Christian here today, you, you remember this moment. Oh, I am desperately broken. Oh, I thought I could do this. Oh, I, I, I was doing the religious thing for a while. Oh, but I've come now to a sharp realization that nothing I do makes a difference. This is a difficult moment, but those of you who have met Christ know that Jesus doesn't leave you there. The realization of our sin uh, isn't where we're left because we also in the gospel learn what I think is the second phrase of the gospel. You're more loved, you're more cherished, in Christ than you ever dared imagine. You're already a child. You are loved. God, in fact, has made you his child. He's adopted you. He's called you. He's chosen you. Loved you before you knew you needed loving. Peter is saying it's at that moment, the moment you come to know in conversion this great God, that's when the exchange happens. You lay down your sin and you are given new life. If you have not come to this knowledge or realization today, if you're here still wondering about Christianity or you're visiting church, I hope that you know today, today is a moment when you could open your heart and mind to know this Jesus who has given himself for you to give you this great exchange. For us who have experienced that, Peter continues to help us think about what difference this exchange makes. Uh, we'll come now to point number two, the purpose. Well, why? Why uh, are we moving toward this exchange? What's the purpose? Look at verse four. 
We've been given all that we need for godliness and life uh, in Jesus' own glory and goodness. But in verse 4, it says this, by these, by these, by by Jesus' own glory and goodness, by these, he has given us very great and precious promises. So that, here's the purpose, so that through them you might share in the divine nature escaping corruption that's in the world because of evil desire. Did did you hear the purpose there? The purpose of these gifts given to us is so that we might share in the divine nature. We, We don't talk about this very often. This great exchange is so that we can become like God. He has become human so we can become divine. That that almost sounds scary to say it like that. But think of it. God has become human. The Son has exchanged the glories of divinity for unity with us so that we can become one with God. Through the Son, we can exchange sin and death for participation in the divine life. We exchange death for life, sin for righteousness, Mortality for immortality. This is the exchange. And notice there are two central ideas that we need to keep in mind here. First, the incarnation, and second, human transformation. Incarnation. Incarnation. What a big word. Jesus becomes human. The incarnation is central to the Christian faith. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. All these 12 days is a celebration of the mystery of how God became human. A few years ago, Tim Keller tweeted, I have become convinced that what makes the difference for Christianity is the incarnation. No other faith says God became flesh. Christmas and the incarnation mean that God went to infinite lengths. To, be, uh, to make himself one whom we can know personally. Jesus has become human. The Gospel of John says it this way. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have observed his glory. The glory as of the only begotten son from the father. Full of grace and truth. All, all through Advent, uh, we've been singing the song, O Come All Ye Faithful, where we say, Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. And in one of the earliest songs sung by Christians, uh, recorded by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, uh, it says, Jesus Christ, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. This is the great and precious promise that Peter is talking about. The fact that God has come near in Christ to rescue us. How has he done this? How has God become human? Um, On the slide here... uh, The Shorter Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 22, asks this very question. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? The answer, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself true body, 
a body just like yours and mine, and reasonable soul, a soul or rationality just like you and I have, by being conceived by the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. This is crucial for our Christian faith, to say that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. Both natures, divine and human, uh, united in the one person of Jesus Christ, yet unmixed. If Christ, think of it this way, if Christ was only partially God, then he could not unite humanity to God. And if Christ was only partially human, Uh, with only a human body but not a human mind, or if he only appeared to be a human, then he could not unite God to humanity. The great exchange requires all of God to be united to all of humanity for all eternity. And that's who we have in Jesus Christ. Now, I know some of you are already tuning out. The professor wax too long. I'm thinking about this dry and dusty idea of the incarnation. It's intellectual. It is a pipe-smoking, you know, I don't know, academic. But what I want to try to say is that the incarnation is not a dry, dusty idea, but it is a living reality. His name is Jesus. And he is alive, and he is here today. And in the power of this exchange, we can live new lives. The incarnation has direct effect on how we live our lives. Listen to how a couple of early church fathers describe the connection between incarnation and our changed life. Irenaeus of Leon, he's an early church father who says, our Lord Jesus Christ, through his transcendent love, became what we are. That he might bring us to what he himself is. Do you hear the connection? Jesus' incarnation enables us to be different, to live a transformed life, to become more like God. Even more poignantly, um, uh, Athanasius uh, says it this way, Christ was made man that we might be made God. Now, now that last one might sound a little scandalous or dangerous. How can human beings uh, be like God? Of course, this does not mean that human beings actually become God or that we as human beings share in the essence of God. We don't cease to be human, nor is our humanity destroyed. The essential difference between God and humanity remains. He is the creator. We are his creatures. But Peter is saying that because of this great exchange, Jesus' incarnation, his perfect life, his death and resurrection, uh, because of this great exchange, our lives are transformed. And we begin to share in the same virtues, the same good life that Jesus himself led. Peter argues that Christians will share in the moral qualities that Christ has enjoyed and we will live forever. God has seen fit to give us this gift of sharing his own life to be united with God forever. 
Notice then that the ambition of Adam and Eve in the garden, remember what they wanted? They wanted to be like God. And they took it upon themselves to eat the, the, the fruit of the tree, to become like God. Now that desire is actually fulfilled in the incarnation. God gives us a way of being united with him and gives us the power to live a new kind of life. This leads to the third point. What the change, or, or what changes in the exchange. Look at verses 5 through 7. It's by this divine power, Jesus has given us everything we need for a godly life. And what's the purpose? So that we can share in the divine nature. We can participate in this new kind of life. Look at verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to support, uh, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, and goodness with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Peter is saying here, because we've received this gift, this great exchange, because Christ has become human, we need to now make every effort to live in a new way. But, but let me be really quick. Let me head you off at the pass. When you heard the word make every effort, we slip into this thinking once again, oh, oh, this is the part where I've got to try hard. Uh, God did his bit, now I need to do my bit. Uh, let me head you off at the pass there. We do not make every effort to live in this new way so that God loves us more or so that God gives us the gift. No, the great exchange is not dependent on us living a virtuous life, but rather the virtuous life is the result of receiving the gift. Did you hear that? Let me say that again, because I think this needs to be drilled into us. The great exchange, this gift, is not dependent on us living a virtuous life, but rather a virtuous life that we live is the result of receiving that gift. It's a result of receiving that exchange. Uh, my, my, my current colleague and, and Biola graduate, uh, Ruth Ann Reese, I've got her quote here in her commentary. She says this, um, It is not the duty and obligation of the believer to grow in their own faith. Rather, the virtues, and this is the part I really want to focus on, the virtues are indication of their faith, and growth in them comes about as a result of relying upon the promises of Jesus. Such reliance is a faith that is rightly located in the righteousness of the one who is Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the gospel way of thinking about change in our lives. Virtue isn't what makes us uh, worthy of receiving the gift. Virtue is what comes from receiving the gift. What does Peter say about virtue? Notice in verse 5, he says that all virtue starts with faith. Faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. No goodness stands apart from this reliance on Christ's own goodness. So, how does our transformed life look? Well, it starts with faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And from faith, it leads to goodness. Goodness is um, and we can put the slide up where we have all the list of these virtues. Starting with faith, uh, the Christian life leads to goodness. Uh, this is 
the, um, the word in Greek, erete, virtue. Uh, goodness is just another way of saying virtue. And in Christian thinking, in the New Testament, uh, goodness or virtue is almost always paired with righteousness, a righteousness that comes from Christ. So from faith, we grow in virtue or goodness or righteousness. From that, we move to knowledge. Here, especially knowledge of God's will and his ways. Peter concludes the letter with an exhortation to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he emphasizes this idea of knowledge all through his letter. But remember, we've already said that knowledge here is fundamentally the understanding that comes from conversion, from knowing Jesus. To knowledge, we add self-control. This is self-restraint or temperance. Self-discipline, not to fall into sinful desires. And I think especially with how this word appears, that's especially sexual desires. Paul told Timothy, for God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. The new life in Christ is one where we are temperate. We live under self-restraint. We don't need others to restrain us or laws of the country to restrain us. We are those who live in self-restraint. That leads then to endurance or perseverance. This, of course, is a common Christian virtue. The word refers to a courageous or steadfast endurance in the face of evil or suffering. And endurance is especially connected to trusting in or relying upon God. Our endurance is made able or effective in us as we are trusting in God in the midst of the trial or the difficulty. Endurance leads to godliness. Of course, this is reverence toward God, living life that is like God. Brotherly affection refers to the love that we have between brothers and sisters, uh, between fellow believers and a family-like devotion. And finally, the list comes to a climax, not just an end, but this is the highest virtue. It comes to a climax in love. Christian love is the supreme evidence of faith. A transformed life is put on display in love. Love is the crowning virtue that encompasses all the other virtues. If you have love, you have all the other virtues in tow. Notice that this list, well, I worry. I worry that this list could be condemning. Or worse, it becomes our New Year's resolution. That we're going to try really hard this year to embody these virtues. And in one hand, or on, on one hand, in one sense, this list, maybe I could even summarize the list by saying this. Moving from faith, first part of the list, to love, the climax of the list, this is a summary of the Christian journey. Beginning with faith, always having the goal of being mature in love, that's what the Christian life should look like. But I worry that this might be a way that we, once again, fall back on our own best effort. That we try to change ourselves by working hard. But remember, change won't happen through trying harder. But only through an encounter with the radical grace of God. 
there is a difference between gospel change and religious change. The gospel is radically different from religion. Religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel operates on the principle, I am accepted through Christ, therefore I obey. Our failure to obey and conform to Christ's character is not a matter of simple lack of willpower. Some of you need to hear that. Stop beating yourselves up. It's not just a simple lack of willpower. And so we can't treat our failures simply by trying harder. We need instead to realize that the root of all of our disobedience is particular ways in which we continue to seek control of our lives through our own self-salvation, through our own works, through our own righteousness. The way to progress as a Christian is continually to repent, to uproot these systems of self-righteousness in the same way that we first became a Christian, by remembering and accepting Christ's saving work for us, And then abandoning self-trust. We must go back again and again to the incarnation. And to Jesus' crucifixion. So that our hearts might be deeply, more and more deeply, gripped by the reality of who he is. He is the incarnate son of God. And who we are in him. We are partakers of the divine nature. Oh, I'm a professor, and there's so much more I might want to say, but um, I think I want to just end with, with two quotations. The early church fathers, the more, I had a fun week this week reading for the sermon, and the more I read, the more quotes I found, so I'm sorry. There are a lot of quotes, but I, I'm saving you from several. But something that was really interesting uh, is many of the early church fathers, those who have gone before us, they were fascinated by this, what do you call it? juxtaposition, this um, striking comparison between God's divine glory becoming human and, and contrasting those two things over and over again. I would hope that we wouldn't lose this wonder, this awe of seeing that Christ in the incarnation has come near to us. Uh, First, a quote from John Chrysostom. Uh, Chrysostom is his nickname, Golden Tongue. Uh, He was a preacher in the early church. I wish I had that kind of cool nickname. Darian Golden Tongue. John Chrysostom says this, The ancient of days has become an infant. He who sits upon the sublime and heavenly throne now lies in a manger. And he who cannot be touched, who is without complexity, incorporeal, is uh, now lies subject to human hands. He who has broken the bonds of sinners is now bound by an infant's bands. He was decreed, uh, 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 but he has decreed that the ignominy shall become honor. Infamy be clothed with glory and abject humiliation the measure of his goodness. For this he assumed my body that I may become capable of his word. That's exactly the exchange I've been talking about. For this he assumed my body, that I may be capable of his word. Taking my flesh, he gives me his spirit. And so he bestows, he's bestowing, and I receiving 
he prepares me the treasure of life. Uh, and one more quotation, Gregory Nazianzus, uh, he says this, he was wrapped in swaddling bands, but at the resurrection he unloosed the swaddling bands of the grave. He was laid in a manger, but was extolled by angels. He was exiled into Egypt, but he banished the Egyptian idols. As a man, he was baptized, but he absolved sins as God. As man, he was put to the test, but as God, he came through victorious. He hungered, yet he feed thousands, fed thousands. He thirsted, yet he exclaimed, whosoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He was tired, yet is the rest of the weary and the burdened. He prays, yet he hears prayer. He weeps, yet he puts an end to weeping. He is sold, and cheap was the price. 30 pieces of silver, yet he buys back the world at the mighty cost of his own blood. A sheep he was led to slaughter, yet he shepherds Israel. He is weakened, wounded, yet he cures every disease and every weakness. He is brought up to the tree and nailed to it, Yet by the tree of life, he restores us. He surrenders his life, yet he has the power to take it again. He dies, but he vivifies, and by death, destroys death. He is buried, but he rises again. Oh, friends, if maybe for the first time or the thousandth time, be amazed at this beautiful Savior who has, in his incarnation, made this great exchange God become man so man can be united with God. This is what we celebrate. This is how to live a new life. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we have heard from your word these encouraging uh, exhortations to think about our lives, to see that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. Help us, Lord. Uh, we so easily turn these messages back into uh, a, a way of reminding us to do it ourselves. Lord, save us. Save us from our own self-salvation. Save us from our own works righteousness. And Lord, break into our hearts and minds that we might see the beauty and mystery of Christ. Christ who is fully divine, but who has come to earth and become like us. Lord, thank you for taking upon a body and for giving us yourself. Save us, Lord. Restore us as we think about a new calendar year. Empower us, Lord, to live in a new way that gives you glory. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.